What's up? This is Camden Cruz from Seven Kingdoms, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Amen, let's Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another week of that, which we like to call Focus on Metal. Picking up again this week, right where we left off last week, digging in, diving deep with Ben Jackson, all about Crimson Glory. So last week, if you haven't listened to it yet, we had about 45 minutes with Ben Talking all about the first album, early tours, all that good stuff. And initially, that was all that Richie was intending to uh, really talk to him about was the first album, and they just kept right on going. So this week, yeah, you know, it, it picks it up right where we left off last week, and just going to keep going through all the albums, all the good stuff. Lots of stuff this week. Another good, uh, I don't know, 45 minutes or so again with Ben. And if you like last week's, then you're certainly going to like this one as well. And, you know, at the beginning of last week's episode, too, Richie had asked me about, you know, whether I was really, you know, a fan of the band and all that. And, you know, I told him that I did have some of the things that they had done in my library. And between then and putting together last week's show, I uh, I decided to just, you know, see what it was that I had. Just kind of remind myself what the hell I had. And I found that I actually had a, a demo, a seven-song demo of some of the older songs with uh, Todd on vocals. And I have no idea where I got this from. Don't remember. And it definitely has some, some weird kind of... Uh, artifacts in there as well almost like the whole track was put through a flanger or something so it's got some some weird transfer artifacts but yeah it was pretty cool to go back and hear some of those songs you know things like on this seven song demo there's like angela war from that first album with todd on vocals instead so that was it was pretty cool like i said uh it was neat to go back and go oh shit i i forgot i had that and i've got a lot of stuff like that in my library that was so many things in there you just forget what the hell you have. You know, same thing with physical copy stuff too. I'm I'm notorious for buying a an album vinyl or something and then realizing, oh crap, I already have this. But anyways, good stuff this week. Lots more stuff to discuss with uh with Ben Jackson as we go through the entire rest of the history of Crimson Glory as well as what Ben is up to these days. So gonna take and uh just take the opportunity to say a little snippet of that promo album and just like i said just a snippet we don't want to uh, get ourselves into a uh, copyright crap and we're going to go right back into the interview that richie had with uh, ben jackson Ben, how did how did the fans take to you guys wearing masks on stage? Did you see any like laughs or you know? Because over in Europe, in general, they, we can be a bit more serious about our music, but yeah. w- because of that, I think we can be more loyal. 
that if you, yeah. if you if you come over and you put on a really good show, uh, we'll we'll always be loyal to you. We're not. I don't think we're as fickle as the American audience can be. When you, yeah. you you guys are going up on stage, you know, with with Metal Church and Celtic Frost, and you're going up and you're wearing masks. Um, did did that go over well? Were there any tough audiences you played to? It went over well for the most part. Yeah, I think people were digging it and it added mystery to the band. So, it, it, you know, that's what we wanted to be, something a little mysterious and, and it worked. Mm. But it wasn't everybody that thought it was cool. There was definitely a few people that kind of, you know, chuckled about it and said, oh, these, look at those stupid masks. And I even think that the guys in Anthrax, when we first did that first tour with them, I think they were kind of chuckling about it. Like, what's up with these guys in these stupid masks? You know? <laughs> <laughs> were, they, were they a pain in the ass to wear on stage with all the lights and the sweat? Yeah, yeah, they were, especially the first album, because we were wearing these full face masks that covered your whole face, and we were all, like, sweating underneath them. And I remember, you know, Dana's nose would run and snot would be dripping out from under the thing. He's like, this is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, drummer sweat more than anybody. He's back there under the hot lights and just like, like I remember Jeff, he, he hated the things. He's like, man, why do we got to wear these pie tins? So <laughs> <laughs> Warren Wyatt was like, when we made the decision to do it, he's like, we got to go full force. We really got to, you know, sell this thing. Okay. So, uh, um, so who did you tour with in the U.S.? Um, let me think. Um, after the first album, I don't know if we did a whole lot of touring in the U.S. We might have did a couple of one-off shows here and there. But um, after the second album came out, the Transcendence album, and we did some tours over in Europe opening for Doro. Um, then we did a full U.S. tour, which included like a lot of the states, Canada, Mexico, and that tour was pretty much we were headlining. Oh wow! US. Wow! And like you know, not not arenas or anything, but large metal clubs and some some little smaller theaters and ballrooms. But okay. We were, we were we were pretty much headlining the North American Transcendent Tour, where we just had local local bands from each town open for us. Okay. Um, I remember a couple couple gigs, like when we played up in uh, New York's um, Lamore in Brooklyn, which is the famous club. I think we opened for EVO, the Japanese band. Yeah, and they had all the face paint. Yeah, and then when we played a couple gigs in um, in um, Boston area, we opened for Lizzie Borden. Okay. So there were a couple gigs on that North American Transcendence tour where we did like find ourselves opening for other bands, but most of the tour it was we were headlining. Okay, did, did any of the Transcendence stuff was was any of that written for the debut and it didn't make the record? Were any of those ideas floating around back then? No, when the debut came out, we didn't have a single song of Transcendence yet. Wow! So did you write that on the debut? Did you write all that the on the road? Came out. Not really. After the debut came out and we did a couple tours for it, um, we weren't the kind of band that was touring like eight months out of the year. I mean, we'd go do a couple weeks in Europe, we'd be back home for several months. And um, we were, you know, we all had day jobs and we just, our tours were kind of planned to just be, you know, a few weeks here, a couple weeks here over to Europe. And so I think, you know, most of the Transcendence record was written around home. 
mm-hmm. our, lo- our local, you know, Sarasota rehearsal studio and around, you know, it was, it wasn't written until after the first album came out though. And we, we did, a, you know, some touring for the first album and we actually said, okay, time to write a second one. And yeah. We got busy and started yep. writing the second one. My, my opinion is, I, I I really like the first one. I think the second one is an absolute masterpiece. I think the step up in the band's writing is huge, and I I think so. It's because you probably played together a little bit longer. You got to know each other a little bit better by being on the road here and there. Um, yeah. I I just think that the songs are are just a lot better. There, there's a, and and I think there's more variation on the second record too. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. I think we just we grew a little bit, and just our you know we were we were gaining some experience, and the writing got a little better. You know. Yeah, because I think it, I think it really this is the album that really got you noticed. I think, you yeah, know, because yeah. some a lot of bands will say, yeah, you, you know, your first album was great. What's your second record going to be like? And then you guys came out with this, and it was like, wow, yeah. wow. Yeah next level yeah yeah so when you actually did shows with midnight singing and the way he sang was it easy for him to recreate the the songs the way they were in the studio no it was actually a little bit of a chore for him he he struggled you know some of those early gigs to 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 figure out you know how to approach doing these songs live and, and make them work in their best way and you know, it's just very demanding stuff to sing. You know, if you hear that the way he sang that stuff on those first records, yeah, like um, like this one, it, it, would be, it would be hard for anybody to go out and do that live. Yeah, but, but he he had nights where he really shined and was awesome, and he he had some other nights where you know it was a few bumps in, in the show, and you know we just we kind of. We got better as we went along. That's for sure. Every time we'd go over for a Europe tour, we'd sure be a lot better by the last gig than we were on the first one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, did we you find ever... our strides about yeah. halfway through the tour? We were like, hey, we're getting good. <laughs> <laughs> did, did, did you ever do May Day Live? Because his vocals on that are like stratosphere. Yeah. You know, his vocals are yeah. way up there on that. Yes, we did. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Was that you? Okay. Was any of this ever recorded? The, the, the touring? Yeah, from yeah. The first the, album? For, or the second? There's, yeah, there's a lot of bootlegs, you know. We okay. Weren't, we, weren't really, we weren't really recording, you know, board tapes every night, but but um, I remember there, there were a lot of bootlegs being made, you know, of our live gigs on the first album tour from some of the, even the guys that owned the clubs. Hmm. You know, they'd, have, they'd have recording gear in the in the in the basement down there, you know, recording our show, and we'd be like, "Hey, man, you can't do that." <laughs> <laughs> now everybody does it. <laughs> I know, but back then, I mean, people would be making shitty tapes on VCR, you know, VHS handheld recorders back then, and then next thing you know, it would end up, you know, for sale. And, some metal magazine would be like, "Hey, Crimson Glory bootleg show for some film gig in Holland," and, and, and we'd see somebody was selling it, and, you know, without our authorization, and we would maybe get a copy and hear it and go, "Oh my God, it's terrible! We don't want that out there." <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of people were recording our old shows. I'm sure there's still a lot of bootlegs. Yeah. Exist. Now, 
You said Arachok was one of the magazines that pushed you over there. I, I seem yeah. to recall you guys being in Kerrang a bit. You were in Metal yeah. Hammer a bit. But when it came to the magazines in the US, did you get much coverage over here? Yeah, a little bit, you know, but not so much big features, just sort of like, you know, where they'd list all the new albums that came out and then maybe get a little review or something. I don't know, the Hit Parader hmm. magazine used to be pretty big in America back then in the 80s. You'd always see Hit Paraders in all the stores on the shelves and or another magazine called Cream. Yeah. I remember that. And we, we might have got a couple little write-ups in those magazines, but not like big features like we were getting in Europe magazines where they were giving us covers and writing two-page articles on us. Okay. You know, the American magazines were maybe giving us a little quarter-page thing, you know? Yeah. Um, did you ever make it to Japan? Yeah, on the Transcendence Tour. I was just telling you about the 1989 um, North American Transcendence Tour. When we wrapped up the North American dates, we went over to Japan. Okay. Did you get any? Was, uh, did you get any gifts from the fans? Yeah, yeah. They're very kind that way. They they draw drawings of each member and give yeah. give them to us. And sometimes, you know, various little things. I remember this one fan gave me this little um, turtle that was made up out of Japanese coins and all tied together with like gold string. It was really cool. And they're like, "Here, this is good luck." I'm like, "Oh, thank you." Mm. Probably still have that. Probably still have that. Yeah. I, I've asked a lot of musicians when they go to Japan about their gifts. And Don Dawkin told me that a fan gave him a Rolex. Really? Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. And he thought Even it was... They would, oh, the coolest thing I remember is they made dolls of us. Yeah. When we went to Japan, some fan came and they, they had made a doll of each guy and, and they were, I don't know, about 15 inches tall and and each one had a mask, and each one really resembled each one of us quite well. They had the hair color and the clothing and everything. It was really cool. Mm. Did, did you keep any of the memorabilia from back then? Yeah, I have boxes of stuff. Okay, what what have, yeah. what, what have you got, Ben? Come on, tell me some of it. Posters, T-shirts? All of it, yeah. Okay. Mostly posters and magazines. I mean, whenever we play like a venue and somewhere over there, and we'd be leaving the venue, and I go, I could see a poster on the wall. I go peel it down. Like I got to keep this. (laughs) I got, I I probably got fifty posters from different, all kinds of different gigs. Okay. All over the world, and then um, mostly magazines. Whenever we'd be featured in a magazine back there, and back then I would always keep the magazine, so I. Just ended up filling a whole box with them. I, I have a box full of magazines of us on when we were on the cover of Krang, um, when we were on the cover of Metal Hammer, and, and uh, you know some of those magazines like Metal Hammer would do posters in the middle, and one of them had like a big poster you could pull out of us and hang on the wall. So, kept mm. all that stuff. What about the what about the vinyl? You still have the vinyl? Oh yeah, sure. Okay. Okay. A couple of vinyls of each record and all, all the singles, the Dream Dancer single and all that stuff. Hmm. I'm looking at my, I'm looking at my copy of final copy of Transcendence. I bought it in December yeah. 1988. Wow. <laughs> on, you still got it on Roadrunner, yeah. 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 I think it was released on MCA over here in the US. Yeah. 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 So before I leave you go, I have to ask. Um, I know you're not on the Strange and Beautiful record, 
Um, but when you look back on that now, leaving the band, um, any regrets about when you did it, or did was it just I have to I ha I have to go. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't really want to leave to be honest with you. I mean, we we were really driving at that time, and, and after we did the whole North American Transcendence tour, and then went to Japan, and I think that took up maybe the last three or four months of 1989. We were busy like all through October, November, December, just touring like crazy. Yeah, and then and then we all got home from the Transcendence tour, and it was January 1990, and. And we had only been home from that tour and our Japanese leg for probably about two weeks. And I was calling John or Jeff and I think and saying, Hey, when are we going to get together and start writing for the new record and stuff? And I, I sort of got the, uh, the impression from them that, that they didn't want to work with me on the new record and that John wanted to be the only guitar player. And they were kind of, you know, trying to, trying to, let, let me down easy, but say this is what we've decided to do. And, and they also were going to use a different drummer. And, and it was really strange because we had this awesome lineup, you know, Twin Guitar Attack. The first two records were very well received. And I think as, as we were, as the band was starting to get a little success after Transcendence, that maybe it was just kind of going to John's head a little bit and his ego got a little bit like, Hey, you know, I can do all this. You know, I don't need these guys. And I don't know. It was, but I wasn't, I didn't really quit. I was sort of edged out. Okay. And yeah. Dana too. Dana too. We were both kind of edged out. Yeah. Cause we were very disappointed. We're like, okay, <laughs> you know, they're going to do this record without us. And at that point, you know, midnight was kind of drinking a lot. You know, yeah. Here every morning, all day, and he was kind of getting that way near the end of the Transcendence tour, and it, where he was kind of getting like, you know, somebody needed to step in and tell him to slow that down. Mm -hmm. So when when they went in to do the Strange and Beautiful album, I don't think it was a real happy time for Midnight because for one thing, you know, Dan and I were probably his better buds in the band than Jeff and John were. Mm. So without us there, Midnight probably felt a little bit like, ah, uh, you know. I think it was really his decision for us to be pushed out. I think it was more John's decision, or it was John's idea, and he kind of talked Jeff and Midnight into it. They went along with it, and that was just kind of the way it went. Me and Dana were kind of edged out. They did that album. Uh, I like it. It's had some, some really interesting and cool songs on it. It was well done, but the fans didn't really accept it because it was such a departure from the style that we started with on the first two. Yeah, and it, it was just—it just really wasn't, you know, accepted that well by the fans, and was put out on Atlantic Records. But I think within like a couple months of it coming out, it was already in cutout bin at all the record stores, which is where you find the records that aren't doing good at all. Yeah, <laughs> so it just didn't do good for Atlantic. I think the band got dropped by Atlantic probably within six months of the time the record came out. Where see the crazy—the crazy thing about this. Man, is that right after they put out the Strange and Beautiful album, they did one gig uh, on a little tour they had planned in America, some some dates around North America, and with and they did one gig with Midnight in Tampa, and they fired him the next day because he didn't do that well that night on the first gig. He was struggling a little bit. Wow! 
and um, and it just and then it really was starting to see okay, you know, this is what John's doing to this band. He's just kind of you know firing everybody. Yeah, <laughs> first me and Dana, first me and Dana at midnight. Um, it's just what it was. It was a bad. It, these were bad moves on John's part. Maybe mm-hmm. he looks back now and realizes that. I don't know, but. If you know, we would have kept the original band together. We had that chemistry that was really working well. We could have we could have made a third album. Oh yeah, that, that, that was similar to the first two, and then made many many more. Maybe we could have been one of them. You know, maybe we could have reached um, a higher height in our career. Yeah, if we would if we would have kept to our original format, stuck to our guns, and just kept you know doing what we were doing. Even though the '90s got a little weird for that kind of music, it was a little difficult. Yeah, a lot, of bands, a lot of bands stuck through and kept doing what they did, and, you know. Mm. Um, when before you left the band, were you signed to Atlantic, or did that happen after you left? No, it happened after I left because actually we we got we got sort of our, our transcendence record initially came out on just Roadrunner in Europe and Road Racer in America, and then we kind of got. MCA, I think, was just a distributor or something. And then we, we kind of, our manager talked to MCA and then just signed in the band. And, and the next batch of records that came out didn't say Road Racer, it said MCA. And we were then officially on MCA. Okay. So we were, you know, I was I was kind of excited. I'm like, hey, you know, it's, uh, when we first started out, we were on indie labels and smaller labels. And now, now we find ourselves on MCA records. And I thought it was just really cool. So... Um, when we did the North American tour, we were playing all over the country. We ended up over in LA, did a show at the Roxy, which is a famous place. It's been there forever. Yeah. And, and the actual, like some of the reps from MCA came out to the gig that night and saw us at the Roxy in LA. And we had a particularly bad show that night for one reason or another. Things just didn't really go that well. We had other shows on the North American tour that were fantastic all over there were super shows but the one we did in LA just didn't come off that well and we were pretty much dropped by MCA like immediately after that show because of one bad show wow immediately immediately after our show in LA that they came to see us at the band was pretty much dropped um, right after that and that's when you know that was probably near the end of that tour and then we went to Japan right from LA played over there and I, you know, like I said, we were home from Japan two weeks later, and I found out from the guys that I wasn't really wanted anymore, I wasn't needed for the next album. So, okay. Um, um, and then, and they had no, they had no label, and MCA dropped them. And okay. The manager Warren Wyatt, he, um, he he knew Jason Flom from Atlantic, and got a little bit of friendship with him, and he got the band. Well, he got Atlantic talked into signing the band for that third album, and. Like I say, short within months of it coming out, kicked off the band. Now, one of the things I've read, Ben, over the years is that you heard the stuff for Strange and Beautiful and you didn't like the direction it was going in. And that was one of the reasons you left. So that's not true at all. No, no. You didn't, you didn't even hit, yeah. none of that material I, I, was even written? I, I, I never heard a single thing from that record until the record came out. And I heard it, and I was like quite surprised at the direction they had taken. I'm like, wow, this this is quite different, you know. I, wa- I wanted to be happy for them on one hand, but on the other hand, I was a little a little bitter about it. I'm like, okay, 
Well, the way I look at it, and I'm on the outside looking in, I started the interview off by saying you and Dana started the band, and then you and Dana, Dana got you and Dana got fired from the band by the by the other guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> After two albums and a little bit of climbing success, and it's, you know, and I, I I do think it was pretty much all John that that they kind of had that idea in mind. Like I, he wanted to be the only guitar player on the third album. He's just like, oh, I don't want to do the two, two guitar player thing. You know, I want to be the, I want to be the guy that's getting all the shine. And, okay. Uh, it was kind of like his, his want. And, and he just kind of talked the other two into it. Okay. Um, that album, a lot of Zeppelin influences was Johnny huge Zeppelin fan anyway, beforehand. Um, yeah, you know, John John liked a lot of things. I think Midnight was the big Zeppelin fan, actually. Okay. And um I don't know why they really went in that direction. It might even been partially from the producer, Mitch Goldfarb might have kinda Okay. Yeah, cause you know, I, a little bit of that. Or I, I don't know who's just who's the real decision it was to kinda mm. go in that direction. Cause I I I'll tell you a quick story, right? So in what when did Strange Beautiful come out? Ninety one, right? Um, I bought Strange and Beautiful the same day that I bought Metallica's The Black Album, right? And I played Strange and Beautiful first, and The Black Album sold 20 million. (laughs) (laughs) And and, because I was like, wow, new Crimson Glory, and then there was a four-piece, you were gone, Dana was gone. I, I liked the record, but, you know, some people will say to me, you know, name a band that had, you know, they were right there on the cusp of really, really breaking it around that time. I always say, and and you dropped the ball. I always say, you guys were one, yeah. And the other one was Halloween. Yeah. Um, they had their issues as well with the, with the label, and they changed the guitar player, and and but I just remember that. You know, I I can still remember that day at buying Strange and Beautiful on the Black Album, and I'm a huge Metallica fan, and I wanted to hear the Crimson Glory album first. Yeah, what was your impression? I, I well, I heard the chant because that was the first single, and that was yeah. a, that was a the guy. None of the band even wrote that, and the masks yeah. the masks were gone. Yeah. It was it was a four piece band, new drummer, um, yeah. different producer. Um, you were you were still on Roadrunner, like my CD is Roadrunner, so you were still Roadrunner in Europe. And yeah. I, I remember listening to the first couple of songs. I liked them, but they had more of a what's the word I'm looking for? That like Moroccan feel, you know, the, yeah, the Zeppelin yeah. Zeppelin kind of sound. Um, sure, it, it, yeah. it wasn't really like Transcendence at all. Some of yeah. it was, but but yeah. a lot a lot of it wasn't. Um, and then in the mood yeah. had a saxophone on it, and I'm like, "What the hell?" Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. uh, it, it it it's I, it was kind of a strange departure from the style that we had established. You know, although it's not a bad record, I've never said anything bad about it. I think there's some really nice stuff on it. Yeah, no, um, I, I like the record. I, I think I, it's aged well. Yeah, you know, I I wanted to be there working with them on it too. Believe me, it's just it wasn't really what John wanted. I think he was going through a phase where he saw, he thought this is what we should do. And I think these were terrible decisions that really, you know, weren't good for the fan <laughs> changing, the, getting us out, me and Dan. And then also, you know, getting rid of the mask, 
changing the style so drastically. These, these were all terrible business moves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, people, people try things. Sometimes they don't work, you know, mm. no, no, sometimes, tr- sometimes tr- people make mistakes. No, no, through all that, when the band were making that album and after it, did, did you have any, did you keep in touch with any of the guys at all? Not too much. You were just you were just pissed night. off that you weren't in the band anymore, and you just wanted to yeah. distance yourself yeah, a little bit. I mean, Dana and I immediately said, "Let's form another band," and we and we found another really good guitar player in our area, and and we had to struggle with who we were going to get to sing for a couple of years. But we we right away started writing music for this uh, Paris and Vision album that we put out in '95, hmm. which um you know was. As soon as 91 hit and we were out of Crimson, Dana and I right away put this plan together to form this band. But for the first year or two, we didn't even really know what we were going to call it. And, you know, we, we talked about calling it Sahara. And then we heard there was, I think, another band. I don't know. And then we ended up going with this name, Parish, and uh, we did the album at Morristown with Jim Burst. And the album came out um, in 95 on a Japanese label called Alpha Records and a, another German label called Long Island Records. And when our Parish album came out, it it sounded more like Crimson than Strange and Beautiful did. Okay. You know? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people said that. Okay. You know, so some people go. So out oh, of I guess Ben and Dana took the sound with them because this record they made it didn't sound just like Crimson, but it had more similarities to Crimson than even Strange and Beautiful did. Yeah. So, who's the first guy you got in touch with again? Was it of Jeff, John, and Midnight? Yeah. When did the waters kind of you know warm uh, up a bit? I say Dana and I had spent the first part of the 90s, 92, 3, and 4, probably working on that Paris record, writing it and finding the right players, and we put the record out in 95. Yeah. And then shortly after that record came out, the singer on the album decided he was going to drop out of the music business and go back to school for graphic design and stuff. So the whole Paris thing kind of came to a crash in 96, like right after the record came out. There was no more band. Hmm. And and then so for a couple of years I was uh, writing songs and preparing for some solo records I wanted to make and but I think it was uh, around '98 that John and Jeff reached out to me and said they were putting the band back together to do Astronomica and they wanted me to come back and they tried to get hold of Midnight at first after like I told you they fired them in '91 yeah. Um, they they wanted him back again, and before they asked Wade Black, they asked Midnight and they to try to get together with him on a couple occasions where he was just was too drunk or didn't show up to the meeting or whatever. And they just kind of they kind of said this isn't going to work, you know, with Midnight. And they went and uh, met Wade and asked Wade to join the band. Actually, um. They already had that record almost completely done before they even called me and asked me to rejoin. So okay. I just I just kind of rejoined to do the tour. You know, I you know, I, I have I have to ask you when when John called you to rejoin, did party want to tell him to f off? Or, and did he yeah. and did he yeah. and did he apologize to you for the decisions he made beforehand? Mm-hmm. I don't think he did. No. Okay. He just, he might have 
roundabout, we said that, you know, hey, I'm, it, it might have been a mistake to go that direction. And, you know, they said, we want to make a new album. Do we want to be, you know, that twin guitar attack again? And we want it to be heavy and more like in, in the vein of what Crimson should be and, and get back to that heavy side and not so much the bluesy um, Zeppelin sort of vibe. Mm-hmm. So, so Astronomica was again, you know, designed to be heavy and to guitar attack, but but without Midnight and Wade on it, it, it still wasn't quite, you know, an album that resembled the first two very much. Okay, it was, it was its own unique thing too. Mm. Did you? Did I don't you? Know, I don't did, know if you have Astronomica. Uh, if you like it, uh, I, I like it. Um, did Did you get on with Wade? Yeah, I got along with Wade very well. As soon as I joined in with them and, and they said, this is Wade, he's a new singer, I got along with him better than John did. Okay. Uh, when we went on the European tour, um, there was friction between those guys almost immediately. Okay. <laughs> Just a personality difference or was it was it the musical? Personality. Okay. John, John's just a diva with an ego, and Wade doesn't put up with that. Wade's a real <laughs> no-nonsense kind of guy. Okay. You know, and, uh, we were on the Astronomica tour, and there was just, those guys weren't getting along. They were button heads right from the first gig. Okay. But by the end of the tour, John was telling me, hey, Ben, I don't think Wade's the right guy for the band. You need to get another singer. Okay. So I was like, okay, all right. Um, Time to fire another guy. <laughs> <laughs> did you Did you get on with John, more or less? Yeah, I did. I mean, we we never really fought. Okay. We we were young guys when we started. I was eighteen, he was sixteen, and we played together for like a handful of years doing cover songs and writing songs before we got our first deal and did our first tour. We already had, you know, maybe six years of working together behind us, and we we always got along pretty good. Mm-hmm. Like you know, you could read them pretty well because I'm going to ask you now. When when he when he fired you from the band, looking back, were there any signs that that's what he wanted to do, or was it a complete shock? Complete shock. Because I, I I'm trying to figure out, you you guys are in a band, and a lot of guys people would say you know a band is like a marriage, you're around each other a lot. Yeah. And for you to say it's a complete shock, you, you must be able to hide things very well. Then. I guess so. I mean, you know, on the. On the North American Transcendence tour, the, the drum tech that we took on the tour that was the drum tech for Dana was the guy they used on Transcend on Strange and Beautiful. The guy named Robbie Jacodia. Oh, he was the tech. Okay. He he was the tech for Dana. Okay. So I think I think that um, sometimes in the afternoon when you know that, that our crew guys would be setting up our gear for that night's gig and they would hear Robbie back behind the kit, you know, he was back there wailing on the drums and getting tones and setting it up for Dana. And, they noticed he was good. They're like, "Ah, this Robbie guy is really good." And somewhere, somewhere during during those months of late '89, when we were touring for Transcendence in North America, I think the John was uh, his new ideas were sort of brewing. That you know, when this tour ends, uh, we, we're going to ask Robbie to join. We're going to eliminate Ben and Dana, and John wanted to do all the guitars on the third album himself. Okay. I don't think it was so much that he disliked me or didn't want me around anymore or thought that I was a bad player. I just think that he wanted to be, you know, the only guitar player in the band. Okay. When we first started out, he dug the whole twin guitar attack thing. He was all into it. We, him and I loved Judas Priest and Accept and the Scorpions and 
that's the kind of band we wanted to be when we started like a two guitar player band and I think um, after John started seeing some of the bands that were out that just had the one guitar player, you know, like Ozzy and Randy, you know, John was a big Randy Rhodes fan. And, and you know, bands like TNT and their hot shot, Ronnie Lee Tecro and stuff. I think, I think it just started getting in John's mind after the first two albums and all the success that we were starting to, to get. And John just started thinking, man, I, I want to be the only guitar player. I want to, I want to be the kind of band where it's just me and I, I get all the shine, you know. Here's the other. Here's the other thing about that, though. I don't think it was anything what? that he didn't. It, it's not that he didn't like me or didn't think I was a good player. He just, he just wanted to do it himself. Here's the other. Here's the question I have about that. When you listen to the first two records, with the playing that's on it, how was he going to play that all on his own live? I don't know because I. You know, when, when they went on that little tour for Strange and Beautiful, I think they were trying to do a lot of Transcendence and early Crimson stuff with just him on guitar. I don't know how, how well that was going. Yeah, it's just, it's just very intricate. It wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to work. You need two players for all that. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Well, you know, he, he realized that years later, like I say, in the late 90s, they wanted to bring the band back. Okay. After they got they got dropped by Atlantic after the third album and, and they didn't try to pursue with the band or to persevere. They just sort of like let the band go. Yeah. From ninety one until ninety nine, they just kind of set it down. Hmm. Um, and we we actually Jeff and John did a couple you know little side projects you know. Yeah. An album called The Crush something. Yeah. Um, were you in the band when Todd Latore was in it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I tell a lie. I have interviewed someone in Crimson Glory. I interviewed Todd earlier this year. <laughs> yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah. Super guy. Yeah, yeah. So how how did you find him? Because I think he lives in Florida, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think around, around the time Midnight died, or a year after, we decided we were going to do a, a big tribute concert tribute midnight of prod power in atlanta which is a big metal fest they have there every year mm-hmm. and um so at, at the time you know we invited way back way had been out of the band too because after the astronomical tour he you know he sort of got fired and the whole band you know disintegrated again so <laughs> after the astronomical tour was in 2000 the band kind of shut down again for several years i think it was about 2000 six or seven where we got back together and did a couple gigs with Wade and and then uh, Midnight died and we decided to do this big tribute gig for Midnight and Wade mm-hmm. was still sort of Wade was sort of back in the band again was the was the uh, working singer with us at that time that we did the Prog Power gig and we invited uh, all these other singers from the other bands that were playing the festival each come up and sing one song with us so it wasn't just Wade singing the whole set but it was a whole different group of guys all all paying tribute to Midnight this one very special gig yeah so, um, and, and all these other guys were you know singers that were established singers and, and established prog metal bands um, but Todd was the one guy out who we invited to come up that night and sing one of the songs but he had never sang with a band he wasn't known at all but but he was introduced to us by Matt Laporte, the guitar player from John Oliva's Pain. Mm-hmm. 
and Matt was a was a friend of ours in Crimson, and, and actually a huge fan of Crimson. He just loved the band, and and after Midnight passed away, um, Matt came down and started hanging out with us a lot at our Crimson rehearsals while we were rehearsing to do this tribute show for Midnight. And he goes, hey, I got this guy with a secret weapon. You know, I'm going to bring him down and introduce him to you guys. And he showed up at our rehearsal one night with Todd, this little guy. And he goes, you got to hear him sing. And, and Todd started singing. And right away, we're like, holy crap, listen to this guy. <laughs> and Wade, Wade, Wade was there, too, at rehearsal. Wade was singing with us. And we're, I think all of our minds were right away starting to think, man, maybe Todd should be the singer. <laughs> <laughs> even, even Wade might have thought that. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think Wade. I think Wade saw the writing on the wall. You know, Todd, Todd came in and was a guest at the Prog Power Show, and he was one of the one of the many guest vocalists that night. And then shortly after that gig, you know, things just started leaning in that direction that he was going to be our new singer. Why did you not do a record with Todd? Well, you know, after he joined, and we went over and did you know several trips to Europe. Sort of showcasing the new singer to the world. Um, we only have maybe one single out that we put out, and no record yet. But we, but we did go over and tour Europe and Greece a, a handful of times with Todd, and people were just loving him in mm. live format. So of course, you know, this was around 2011, 12 that we were doing all these tours again with Todd as our new singer, kind of a reinvigorated Crimson Glory. And um, that was the plan. We're like, okay, we got this the time to make a new record. We're going to do it again with Ben and Dana back in the fold on the new record with the great singer. And let's get going on it. And after a bunch of tours in Europe, we said, okay, let's get busy and start writing. And we planned um, back in our hometown to, hey, let's get together on this night every week and let's make that a writing night and let's start writing. So we started doing that for about a month. And John just stopped coming. You know, we 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 get together every week. Some nights he'd come. It was a Monday night thing. We get together every Monday, and we'd all be there. And some Mondays, John would show up a couple hours late. Or some nights, some Mondays he wouldn't come at all. And, you know, he was there for a few of the sessions, and we wrote maybe two or three cool new songs with Todd. And he just, he just uh was wrapped up in other things around that time and um, he wasn't really coming out and, and Todd got frustrated and John's lack of involvement and then Todd quit. Okay. So he quit before he got the Queensryche gig. It wasn't the Queensryche gig that made him quit. No, it, it was a combination of both. I mean, he, he was still in Crimson Glory when he got the Queensryche gig. Okay. And, and he was telling us that, oh, don't worry, guys, I can do both. I'm going to do both. And I think we all knew, oh, no, dude, that's, that's, you know, that's not going to happen. Once you really get going with Queensryche, you know, they're definitely going to tell you, you know, you're only in this band. Yeah, you know? definitely. And, but it wasn't it wasn't that way. They didn't tell him he had to quit Crimson. I think when he first joined Queensryche, you know, he was telling us, oh, I'm still going to do the new Crimson album and I'm going to be in Queensryche too. And that was kind of a disappointment to us. We're like, oh man, he got hired for Queensryche. I mean, do we really want to put out a new album with this singer we discovered if he's just the same singer that's on you know, the new Queensryche? It was kind of taken 
taken the it kind of spoiled it for us really to to really want to make a new album with Todd once he joined them. Hmm. Um, but we but we were going to. I mean, that was the plan. He, we were working on new material and with Todd, and we were all gun ho to make a new record. And then it was kind of like he got the gig with them right about the same time we were still getting together and writing. And he was telling us, yeah, I'm going to do both bands. And we're kind of like, yeah, right. That's not going to happen. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's only a matter of time before they tell you you can't do that. It it, you know? <laughs> it 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 could it couldn't have been lost on you then that early on in your career you were compared to Queensrÿch and now your singer was leaving to join Queensrÿch. Oh, I know, and it was funny because there was a few rehearsals where where after he joined them and they were starting to write and do stuff, and he came down and was writing with us and. and I remember one time he came in and said something like, "Man, those guys don't even know who you are," and like. Yeah, right, Todd. They know who we are. We toured with them back in, you know. Yeah. On the Operation Mind Crime tour, we played several dates with them. You know, I remember gigs where I, I met all the guys in the band and you know, hung out with them. And the gigs we were doing, like the Art Shock show with them, and Scott Rock and Deal was standing on the side of the stage watching us. And if you want, he wanted to check out Dana. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we they definitely knew who we were. That's that's the only reason they hired him. Because you know they they saw the videos of some of the European touring we did with Todd, and they're like, "Holy crap!" You know, they they saw what he had done with us, and that he was doing great things with Crimson, and they they hired him. Mm. And then for some reason, I don't even know why Todd said that, but one one of the rehearsals, he was down working with us, and he made that comment to us. He's like, "Those guys don't even know who you are," and we're like, "That's that's kind of rude of you to say, but whatever." Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you kind of have a hard time believing that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we weren't we weren't that well known compared to them, but they definitely knew who we were. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. But, but not to say anything bad about Todd, because he's always sweet and very respectful. That was just one one thing he said one night that I kind of puzzled me. Mm. I said, "These right guys, they don't even know who you guys are." Well, <laughs> okay. All right, all right, Todd. <laughs> um, did you do any strange and beautiful stuff with Todd? No, nothing. You just completely ignored that era of the band. Yeah, and what? with Wade. Okay. And we put out one when Astronomica came out, and we did a big long tour on, in 2000 with Wade for the Astronomica album. We did a lot of a lot of songs from Astronomica on that tour, and we did and we did select songs from both of the first two Crimson albums. But we didn't do anything from Strange and Beautiful. Wow, it wasn't even brought up. No, we never did any of those songs with Wade, and we never did any of them with Todd. Did you want to do any of them? Not really. No. Okay, you didn't. Okay, because sometimes you, it can go both ways. A musician can say, "I didn't play on it. I don't want to do it now." And then other times, like I give, like Bruce Dickinson, for example, he doesn't have a problem singing the Blaze Bailey songs. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, it wouldn't have been a problem. It's not like I didn't play on it. I don't want to play the stuff kind of a thing. I mean, I would have, I would have played the songs. Okay. But I just don't think it really, it didn't really fit in. Cause the style is so different. Stylistically with everything else, especially when Astronomica came out and it was pretty heavy and hardcore. And we were, we were over on tour with Wade on the Astronomica tour doing Astro songs and some of the heavier and cooler songs from the first two albums. And it was just, 
we all knew that there wasn't anything on that strange and beautiful album that was going to work in that set that was going to really fit in. Okay. You know, it was it was a stylistic thing. Okay. It's just they weren't going to work, and and it wasn't that I didn't like the album. I already told you I kind of liked it. Mm-hmm. And and it wasn't that I wasn't on it that I said I don't want to play this stuff. It's just that we just all kind of knew and chose the songs we were going to do. Um, in the in the Todd era and the Wade era, and just nothing from Strange and Beautiful ever got picked. Mm. Um, did, we we all just kind of realized it wasn't really the right. Did did you do style. did you do any? I'll pick your brain here now. I'll, I'll finish on this one. When you did shows with Wade and with Todd, did you do any songs from the first two Crimson Glory albums that you didn't do at midnight? No, I think we did. Every song we did with, with, we did songs with Todd that we didn't do with Wade. Okay. Um, like when we did the Astronomica tour, we would do some songs from the first two albums with Wade and he did well, but there were certain things that Midnight sang that Wade just wasn't really the right kind of singer. He wasn't going to be able to pull off. So some of the, some of the stuff from the first two albums, I'm not even sure if I can remember. I would say probably lonely. Okay. Lost reflection, lost reflection, and lonely. Mm-hmm. Burning bridges. Um, we never did those with weight. Um, but when Todd came in, we saw that he could do all that stuff beautifully. So we did, we did all that stuff on the tour with Todd. We were doing burning bridges. We hadn't done it since the midnight days, and Todd sang it beautifully. We were doing. Um, Lost reflections and okay. lonely, lonely. Um, you know, some of the songs we never did with Wade, we did with Todd. Did you do Eternal World with Wade or Todd? Yeah, both Wade and Todd did Eternal World when we were doing the Wade tours. Wade did Eternal World. Um, I don't think we ever did Mayday with Wade. Yeah, that- in the old in the old days touring with Midnight in the eighties, we would do Mayday live. You know, Midnight might have struggled with it a little bit, but we did do it. Okay. And then, and then when we when we did the touring with Todd, um, we always did Mayday. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. uh, that's up there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Todd, Todod struggled with that, but but he hit it pretty well. We had a lot of fun playing it. Okay. Do you still keep in touch with Todd? Yeah. yeah. Okay. His solo album is really good. I had him on earlier this year to help promote it. Yeah, it is really good. He's uh yeah. he really is a metal head. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So Ben, what what have you what have you got at the moment? What projects are you working on? I have a band called Avenging Benji. It's um a hard rock metal band that I front and play guitar and sing lead. I've had this band going for I don't know, maybe a decade. I've got a couple records that I've done independently. Okay. And um not really anything that's been pushed too hard by any labels, but you know, some pretty good releases. I've gotten some good reviews and definitely had some some good times making these records. Mm. So, um, that's actually the new Avenging Benji record that we just made a couple of years ago is is yet to come out yet. We're getting ready to put it out in the beginning of this coming year. It's called Love Angel Sex Devil. Okay. By by Avenging Benji. So that's something we may look for from us and beginning of the new year. Okay. And uh, we had we had one other one called Golden Dragons that we put out back in two thousand ten. Okay. 
kind of a mixed bag of different, you know, songs. Some of some of the songs on that record were, were quite heavy and crimsonous, but some of them were a little bit more ballady and with piano parts and acoustic guitars and but the, the newer Avenging Benji record that we just completed is really more heavy. Okay. You know, no piano or acoustics, just all hard rock, heavy guitar. Mm. Uh, so I stay real busy. I stay real busy with uh, my, my solo projects. Okay. And, uh, uh, I, have, I have to ask the question because when I, I put it up on social media today that I was talking to you, and of course a ton of people asked me, has there ever been any rumors of Crimson Glory going out to play shows? Because when you look now, you have all the cruises, you have the festivals in Europe, they'd be all like one-offs. Um, has there ever yeah. been any talk of you uh, doing any of those? Well, you know, people and people write me messages and invite, that's for sure. Okay. <laughs> but no, since since John left the band um, back around 2012, um, he had a son back then, and he's just really been focused on, on being a dad for ever since then. And, okay. And to be honest with you, he, he kind of, he did a few things that sort of the rest of us felt a little burned by him at that period. Mm-hmm. Like, um, he, he is flat out the reason Todd quit. I mean, when you ask Todd why he quit Crimson Glory, he, he doesn't mention me or Jeff or Danny. He says, because John stopped showing up to the writing sessions. Okay. Point Blake. And, and, and John, although he says, you know, the reason I dropped out of music is because I had a son. There's, there's a little more to it than that. John's, he's, he's got some issues. Okay. You know, I don't think, um, you know, and I don't, I don't mean to sling any dirt or anything, but I just, no, no, nobody, nobody in the band wants, wants to work with John again. Okay. You know, there's, I mean, even if we were invited to come play big festivals and, you know, we're not, we're not going to do it with John. Okay. I mean, who knows? You might you might see another incarnation of the band reappear someday with Dave and Jeff and I, but you know John John won't be there. Okay, <laughs> maybe Todd will do it. Yeah, I don't, I don't really want to speculate too much in the future because um, you know, yeah, I don't want to get I don't want to get the fans excited. Okay, we've done that before. We told them we were going to make a new album with Todd, and then when it didn't come to light, people were like, oh man, you know what he said. <laughs> Do you have a website where people can get in touch with you and buy your music? Um, Avenging Benji has a Facebook artist page. You know, okay. That's when you can, I think you can buy the music through there. Okay. Well, Ben, it's been a ple- it's been a pleasure talking to you. You too, my friend. Very nice. Yeah. Appreciate it. I was only supposed to talk to you about the debut record, and I kind of went off on a tangent. <laughs> yeah, I guess I ran off on a couple stories too. Yeah, but, yeah. And you're easy to talk to. You're a nice guy. <laughs> All right, take care of yourself. Take care. Have a good All night. right, you too. Bye. All right, so maybe it was more like 50 minutes this week with Ben Jackson rather than 45. Uh, you know, editing and things happen, and, you know, that's how it goes. But anyways... That is a wrap for two weeks worth of chat with Ben. And uh, just cool to dig back and uh, go into the history of a band like that. And uh, it also just kind of gave me a, a different viewpoint of, uh, of Morris Sound Studios as well, because I was, you know, I kind of gauged a lot of my thoughts about Morris Sound based on a lot more of the you know, kind of the Florida death metal stuff that came out of there. 
but uh, definitely a you know great studio and some talented people there as well. So uh, one more show left for 2021, and uh, then we'll probably take I don't know a couple weeks off just to uh, deal with the after the holidays, just general crap and probably not wanting to do a heck of a lot. Although I'm sure within there, even if we don't put a show out for a couple of weeks, that we'll probably be doing a lot of behind the scenes audio and activity as well, getting ready to uh, to relaunch for 2022. But before we do that, next week, what's in store is, eh, it's a couple months late, but we decided to do more of a long form discussion going back to the roots of the show and uh, you will be hearing a discussion that we uh, we had just about Metallica in, in the Black Album. You know, 30-year anniversary for this thing. Looking at what else came out that year and, you know, just kind of where this sits within the Metallica canon and all that. And uh, that is what is in store for, uh, for next week. And I'm sure there's people that are going to agree with things that get said. And I'm sure there's just as many people that are going to disagree with things that get said. Uh, because uh, definitely the Black Album is one of those dividing line albums for the band. And I'm sure that if you didn't get divided at the Black Album, there's probably a whole bunch of people that also got divided when they came out and did load. But all that being said, that is what is in store next week as uh, we do, like I said, kind of more of an old school, all discussion focus on metal because, you know, way back in the day, that was really kind of what the foundation and what we were thinking about what Focus Metal should be is just, you know, a couple of metal fans sitting around shooting the shit about their favorite bands and the music and the style and all that. And so uh, definitely next week, that is what that show is going to be as we wrap up 2021. But for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, And everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, as always, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.